Uh, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here, and I'm coming off the, the tail end of uh, my paternity leave. The deacons graciously gave me some time to welcome my son, John Christian, for into the world. And uh, this is kind of the, the, the tail end of it. And uh, I missed you guys, but also I just feel an unbelievable sense of being loved by you all. Uh, Lisa holding it down with worship. Zach Carter wrote the liturgy. We've had different people step in to preach. Uh, so I just feel very loved by you guys. You guys kind of created the space for me and my family, and it's just been the coziest couple weeks of my life. So uh, it's been very sweet, and uh, we're excited to have our baby and excited for you all to meet him. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to hear from Pastor Lou again. He preached a few weeks ago, uh, and it was just, I got rave reviews back from, from a lot of you. Uh, and I think after hearing uh, a young, dumb pastor like me for a long time, hearing someone that's got some wisdom and experience under their belt, it's just like, Oh, good. Uh, so, someone's older than Josh out there. So I uh, invited him back, and he was gracious to come and preach. Uh, so I didn't have to write a sermon this week and could just kind of be with the fam. Uh, so I'm excited to hear from him. Uh, if you want to come on up, Lou, I'll, uh, I'll pray for you and, and then set you loose. Father, I praise you for uh, my brother Lou. I praise you for uh, the glory you get in his life and his, the generosity he has with his time uh, coming down here to serve us as generosity uh, with me and, and uh, counseling me and encouraging me in, in the work of your ministry. I pray for our hearts this morning, Father, that we would receive the word you've given Lou, uh, that the peace of the gospel would come to bear in a new way uh, in, through your presence, through the Holy Spirit. I give him joy in you as he preaches and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be back with you and um, to hear that your, your nursery is increasing, right? Praise God for that. Um, I don't know. I can just share with you. I think it was 13 years ago, 14 years ago at Sojourn, they had no one in their nursery. And some of the older saints begin to pray, God, fill up our nursery. <laughs> so it's a little more than a decade later, we have 160 kids from 0 to 10. Be careful what you pray for. You know, it just like the, the young people will overtake your church, right? Um, this is the first of four Advent Sundays, and uh, this theme today is waiting on God, specifically um, yeah, waiting on him to, to work in our lives. So a key ingredient of God's spiritual recipe for every Christian life is occasionally to involve you in some hard circumstance. Um, and, or to have some long-awaited answer to prayer, and it doesn't come. So we asked us, to learn to wait on him patiently. And, and I don't know about you, but to be totally honest, waiting is not, I don't know, in my spiritual sweet spot. It is hard for me to wait. And I find that to be the case with most of us. We are like this fast-paced culture. We kind of want everything Jimmy John's fast. Freaky fast, right? Whether we're talking about cash from the ATM or food from our microwave. Think about it. We live in a culture where if we wanted to know things like how many flamingos 
are in Florida. We get on this little iPhone and say, Siri, tell me how many flamingos are in Florida. Please do not try this in the pew right now. You can do this a little bit later. And Siri will say to you, I did not understand your question. But we know what, whatever it is, it's like whatever we want it, we can have it now. But I'm telling you, folks, and you probably have been a seasoned saint for a while, uh, God's working in our lives is not instant. Now, as salvation is, and that's immediate. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, you're saved right now. Eternal life is yours right now. You've passed out of death into life right now. You will no longer be under judgment right now. That's immediate. But his sanctification process, child of God, if you haven't noticed that, that takes time. Spiritually maturing us in the character of Jesus Christ, that takes time. It will, and by necessity, by design, by intent, it will include learning to wait on God patiently. Here's why. With every minute or circumstance, God has us wait for whatever it is. His desire is to do a deeper work in us through the waiting. So that when the answer to prayer comes, the work he's done in us is more significant than the answer to that prayer. He desires to do this deeper, perfecting character work that only takes time. And so when you think about God's work in us, in you, think crockpot, not microwave. God is a God of process. And so what does waiting on God patiently look like? Let's go to Psalm 62. That is our first text today. Psalm 62. And by the way, in your pew Bible, Psalm 62 would be on page 898. And may I encourage you that um, to follow along with the scriptures when the sermons are being preached, to put your eyes on a page helps you to learn the word as it's being taught and followed. So these pew Bibles are for that purpose, if you don't bring your own Bible. All right? Psalm 62. Is there a beginning text this morning? This great song was written by King David, who faced through his lifetime many life-threatening crises and dangers at a level likely few of us ever will. Thus, he is writing from a great deal of personal experience as well as describing his present reality when he says, My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. This little verse is packed. So let's unpack it with just looking at a couple of phrases. The first phrase, my soul waits in silence. What does that mean? What does that involve? Primarily, this means praying and listening. 
time of meditation, reflecting, eyes on the Bible, praying and thinking through the Scriptures, waiting for God in silence, primarily with His Word open up to us as we pray. But significantly, this phrase can also be translated to come under. Specifically, hear this, to come under God's authority and His will in our lives, in our spirit, on a given issue or situation. To come under. Because especially when we are in a stressful situation or we're desiring a particular answer to prayer, the usual goal of our praying is trying to get our way with God. When God's first purpose in our prayer life is for Him to get His way in us, Therefore, in these in-silent moments, they are surrender moments. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done through me, not my will. And child of God, be assured, this is where the power and the peace of God is experienced when we come under in our spirit. We cannot and will not experience the power and peace of God as long as we're in control. The next phrase, for God only, it's pretty obvious. It doesn't say, wait for God primarily or wait for God as my last resort, but wait for God ultimately. It's not wait for God, give him a little bit of time. If that doesn't work, then forget it. It's wait for God to work. David expands on this, what he has learned himself over many years and many personal experiences. He says, because from him and him alone is my salvation. Then he says it even stronger. He says, he only is my rock. He only is my salvation. He's the only place where security can be found. He is my stronghold. Therefore, I will not be shaken. I will not be greatly shaken. And if you do, even a cursory look at David's life, you're going to find out he experienced numerous occasions where humanly he was greatly shaken. For one thing, he was literally hated and hunted by Saul for 13 long years. His life was on the, on the, he was on the run for no other reason because of Saul's intense jealousy toward him. As a result, David felt the same overwhelming fear you would. But when he went to God with it, openly and honestly and desperately, and he said, Lord God, you have got to be my salvation, or I'm toast. 
You've got to come through for me and protect me. I'm done. When those times came, he learned by experience, either I go to God or I go to pieces. And we're no different. If we don't do that, little by little, worry by worry, sleepless night by sleepless night, our fears and our worry will hijack our heart and dissipate our hope. We will lose perspective. We will lose God's perspective on our life, on our situation, on his sovereignty, and with it, his inner peace. But as we practice and learn waiting on God only and ultimately, you know what happens? It's like it's experiential, but like this spiritual grounding takes place in your spirit and your soul. It's tangible that sinners and settles within you. And you come away with this girth of God confidence. <laughs> Assurance. Your circumstance has not changed, but your spirit has. Well, in essence, this is what David is describing because he's been there, he's done that, and he's still doing it. So look at verses 5 through 8 with me, and we're going to read these with a little bit of fervency. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock. He only is my salvation. He only is my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. On God my salvation, my glory rests, and the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. And then you will experience like I did, he said. God is our refuge for us. When it says in the Bible that God, like in verse 5, God is my hope, this is not like, well, I hope it'll all work out kind of hope. This hope means waiting with absolute confidence on him, knowing that only he can bring satisfaction to my life and peace to my heart. Because look at who God is and what he does. He is our stronghold. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He always comes through for him. Because you can trust in him at all times. Here's the point. When we learn to wait on God in our troubled times and beyond, at all times, when we, the more we learn to wait on him like this, he becomes the settled confidence of our soul, not a change of circumstance. So that even though the mountains may crumble before us, we will not be greatly shaken because we know who has our life secured. David experienced this, and it is very possible for us to do so as well. In the process... <laughs> Child of God, he can give us a peace and a power in the circumstance that's beyond description. Humanly beyond description. Our spirit can be settled when nothing else is. That's our hope. Roughly two-thirds of your Bible is in narrative form. And one of the reasons for that is, is that God knows our frame. He knows how we best learn. And so he has actual examples in Scripture 
of people who have fleshed out what we're talking about this morning. Very ordinary saints who he used in extraordinary ways simply because they learned to make their God their hope. One of, the, um, one of those folk is a gal, is one of my favorites in Scripture. Her name is Hannah. And her story is found in 1 Samuel uh, in your Bible. And if you would turn there, it is in page 418 in your pew Bible, if that would help you. And let's learn about Miss Samuel. It's about, 1 Samuel is about one-sixth of the way into your Bible. Ruth, then Samuel. All right, beginning for Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Rathotham, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Joham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And am I glad that's over? And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. All right, let's get, let's get to this. Though it was common in that time for men to have two wives, this was not of God. All right? Because when God created Eve for Adam... He, create, he didn't create Eve and then Ethel, right? It was one man for one woman. He didn't create Adam or Albert. Nor did he create Eve or Steve. He created one woman for one man. In fact, men who married two wives predictably had double trouble for it. And it would be predictable because... Who's the favorite? Who's the, who do you prefer the most? It's natural jealousy would set in. Let me ask you a question. Have any of you, don't answer this necessarily, have any of you ever been crazy enough to try to date two people at the same time? Well, let me tell you, at the end of my senior year in college, for two demented months, I tried to date two, two gals of the same, and I liked them both. That's why I dated them. So it'd be one one night and the other one the next night and on and on it went. One gal I was dating was actually the gal I'm now married to. Her name is Patty, better known as Princess Patty, and we've been married for 46 years. And the other girl, her name actually was Ethel. <laughs> I know. The final two months, of, you know, we're dating both of them. Then summer comes, Ethel goes home 200 miles away, and Patty goes to work in a youth ministry in San Diego, and I'm writing to both of them. And um, one day, Patty's on an outreach trip going to Arizona on a bus with all these kids, and the bus needs gas, so it pulls into a station. Now, this was back in the day, back when the earth crusted over, that actually gas attendants came out and filled your bus for you. And when high-octane gas was called, do you remember? High-octane gas, what was it called? Ethel, you remember. 
I got one in my age group here. Okay. So he comes up to the bus driver and says, What will it be, sir? Regular or Ethel? Well, my wife is again writing to me at this very moment, and she is not one to miss a strategic moment. So she says, Hey, Lou, guess what the gas attendant just asked us? What would we like? Ethel or regular? What a great, timely question, don't you think? So she writes the rest of her letter and she signs her name regular. <laughs> uh, and I've been driving low-octane cars ever since, let me tell you. Well, Alcana wasn't just dating two women, he was married to them. And Hannah was clearly his favorite, but she was also barren. But Panenna was not. Look, at me, look with me at verse 3. Now this man would go up from the city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of the host in Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord there. Uh, again, Shiloh was a religious center at that time. This was obviously the annual journey that they would make to, to the Passover feast. Um, verses 4 and 5. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Now, folks, if you can underline that, if it's your own Bible, the Lord had closed her womb. This was his doing. But why? From all indications, Hannah was a God-seeking gal, faithful wife, with a normal, natural, God-given desire to have children. In fact, in that culture, to have children as a woman's ability to bear children was a red badge of significance. It was considered a direct sign of God's blessing on both her as well as her husband. And the flip side was also true. If you weren't able to bear children, that meant God's curse was on you and on your husband. This is not at all what God said, but nevertheless, the people had come to believe it. So you can imagine how year after year, as Hannah's womb remained barren, little by little, her spirit also became barren. Her disappointment likely deepened into depression, and her hope gradually faded into despair. And she was now, like it or not, just like it is often with us, she was in God's waiting room, praying and longing and lingering and wondering, God, where are you? Some of you can identify with her today, with the despair she had to be feeling and in some significant way, you are experiencing it today. There is some ongoing challenge or need or disappointment in your life. So why does God allow a barren womb or closed door, a devastating loss, the dashed dream? Why doesn't he just give us what we want when what we want are good things? For some, it's like, God, I want to be married. For others, it's, God, I want to have children. For some of us, Lord, I want children who walk with Jesus as adults. 
It could be a clean bill of health. It could be a better job, a decent job. You can fill in your own blank, but I'll tell you, at those very moments of our greatest disappointment, Satan is there to give his lies to it and speak into it, who is the father of lies, and to whisper these kind of deceptions. God is not good to allow this in your life. He's cheating you. He's holding out on you. Or he's not listening. He's not responding. How long have you been praying about this? This waiting game is a loser game. Listen, child of God, Satan knows where you're weak and when you're the weakest. And he will tailor his lies accordingly. Be aware of that. It takes the truth to combat it. The truth about your God. He is a good God. He's a faithful God. He's a sovereign God. He's working on your behalf. Occasionally, these very lies will be reinforced by the attacks and ridicule of others. Look at verse 6. Her rival, Penina, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Her rival would mock her and ridicule her. And you can just hear her. You're a curse to our husband. I'm a blessing. Look at the children I'm bearing. You're an embarrassment. In verse 7, the ridicule took place year after year as they traveled. As they traveled, Penina would taunt. She knew just what to say to dig her jealousy knife a little deeper into the spirit of Hannah and then rub the corrosive salt of her own bitterness. Some of us can identify as well with Hannah right here because you too have had a rival or a rejecter or a ridiculer. And it could have been years ago but who knew what to say to put you down, who had it out for you. It could have been a spouse. It could have been a parent. It could have been an uncle. It could just have been an enemy. So she got to the place she couldn't even eat. Now, guys, um, when our wives are so grieved over something, (laughs) the Scripture is so practical. I love it. It's so down to earth. So there's a little bit of marriage counseling in this text. I don't know if you picked it up, but you will now. When our wives are so troubled over something, what did men typically try to do? Well, it's what Elkanah tried to do in verse 8. See if you can pick it up. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and, why do you weep and not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? What he tried to do was to fix the problem by fixing his wife. This is the unfortunate male default mode. We go right to logic. Hey, babe, aren't I better than you than ten sons? What do you think? I'm telling you, guys, and this is hard. Ladies, we just naturally don't think this way. 
They just need us to empathize, not fix. They just need us to empathize with their emotions. I, I realize it would be a lot easier if, if my wife had a teleprompter right across her. To, you just move away those bang, Let me see what I, how can I identify with, what do you want me to say? I just don't really know what to say right now. A little teleprompter could help me. It, it was just language we have to learn. The next few verses can be appropriately entitled What to Do When You're in Distress, When Your Dreams Are Dashed, When Your Despair Is Deep, When Your Hurt and Heartache Seem Unbearable. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple, and she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. All right, the fir- what's the first thing we should do when we're overwhelmed with our hurt, our heartache, our helplessness, our fear, our worry, when we're distraught, when we're depressed, and when we're despairing? What is the first thing? Listen, do what she did. Do what she did. Pray openly and honestly to God. Don't do stained glass prayers. Pray whatever is on your heart. Whatever is on your heart, even if you can't get any words out and you get any just tears, pray desperately to your God. Do it foremost, do it first, and do it faithfully. She didn't just keep it inside. You can't just keep it inside. She pleaded her cause openly, honestly, and emotionally to God. I'm going to quickly go through this because I know our time is short. There's three ways you can handle emotional pain. Two are devastating and one is redemptive. The first way you handle redempt- we can handle emotional pain, relational pain, is we stuff it. That is a loser choice. If you stuff relational pain, it will eat you alive. You cannot eat that pain without talk, turning your spirit and poisoning it. What it will cause you to do is several things. Number one, it will shut you down toward people. If you don't process emotional pain, you will find it hard to trust people. And that will cut you off relationally. You only get intimate, if at all, with a few people, and it will leave you lonely. Secondly, it will do is it will depress you. It's not meant to stay inside of you. It will grow you more discouraged. It will increase your stress. It will increase your internal bondage. The second thing you can do with emotional pain is you can let it all out. You can obey it. You can give it the microphone. That's also disastrous because we know... People who do that, they let it all out by lashing out and let the people have it and they just, oh, I kind of feel better for a while. Psychologists will tell you that if you're angry, you need to cut it loose. Just do it on some neutral object like a pillow or something. Beat it up and you'll feel better. I caution you against that and I'll tell you why. The Bible tells us that we directly reap what we sow. We always do. So whatever you sow with your tongue and whatever you sow with your actions, you reap it back into your spirit. We all have a pride monster in us. We all have an angry monster that needs to be slayed. Whenever you let it out, you're feeding the monster. He's just going to grow bigger. He's going to dominate you and control you. The only way you get that out, listen very carefully, if you lose your temper, the only way you're going to slay the pride monster is through humility. That means going back and admitting where you were wrong, 
that you weren't justified in losing your temper. It wasn't somebody else's fault. It wasn't because things aren't going your way. You don't rationalize it. You don't excuse it. You just admit it. I was wrong for losing my temper. You're not the problem. I am. And I want to seek your forgiveness. Right there, you just sowed humility into your soul. That's the only way you do it. Please, if you blow it with somebody, don't just try to act nice to make up for it. Confess it out. The only way sin gets out of our life is through the lips, to God and to others. The third way to process emotional pain is directly to God. Acknowledge it directly to God. That's the way that works. It will grow us. It will change us. It will be redemptive. Look at verses 12 and 13. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her. And as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, but only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. <laughs> oh, man. She was so emotionally praying, she couldn't, even, she couldn't even get the words out. And sometimes that's how upset we are. Look at verses 14 through 17. Then Eli said to her, How long will you, ta- will you make yourself drunk? Put away the wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now about my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your, your petition that you have asked of him. Hannah directly asked the God of her desire for a son, of her desire of her heart, but notice it was how she asked that was so significant. Verse 11 is basically, look at verse 11, I'm sorry. She made a vow, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not, and not forget thy maidservant, but will give me thy maidservant a son, that I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. I want you to understand something, moms. <laughs> she was basically giving him over to the service of the Lord. That child would be let go at three. Picture that. And when she sent him off to Samuel or whoever, that boy would not be going to priesthood nursery school. He'd be going to stay there. So we cannot miss what has actually taken place in Canna's heart with all the weeping and the waiting. A significant decision was made. She surrendered. She came under in submission. She transferred over her rights. I give you the right to my womb, to my future, to my life, to my child you choose to give me. Through her barren years, Hannah's prayer was, Lord, please give me a child. And God's prayer was, Hannah, first give me Hannah. First give me your womb. First give me your life, and I will multiply both beyond your wildest imagination. Child of God, 
It is one thing to cry out to God in your pain. It is quite another to be willing to have God change you through your pain. It is one thing to go to God with all of our wants. It's another thing to say, Lord Jesus, I'm willing to have you do what you want. It is one thing to pray, God, just get me through this. It's another to pray, God, grow me through this. Again, the ultimate product of our prayer life is not us getting our way with God. It is God getting his way in us. This means for the greater good, God may say no to a specific request because he desires to say some, yes to something far, far better. I would say, too, that something is always going to include character growth that leads to the life you always wanted in the end, the results are a far greater life than you and I could ever imagine. And I want to quickly read verses 19 and 20. Look what happened with Miss Anna. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about a due time. Hannah had conceived. She gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I've asked him of the Lord. Look at verses 24 through 28. Now it had come when she had weaned him, about age three. She took him with her, the three-year-old bull, one ff of flour, and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as your soul is, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord, for this is the boy I prayed for. And the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the house of the Lord. As long as he lives, he's dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. The first ten verses of chapter 2 contain Hannah's praise, her prayer of praise, her song. But then, I'm trying to move on here, find my place. Then it came down, what became of her surrendered son is that Eli, I mean um, Samuel, became the great judge and prophet of Israel. Ultimately, he became the kingmaker. And Miss Hannah, what became of her? Chapter 2, verse 21. And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived, and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Oh, my word. Her quiver was full, and so was her life. And the lesson is clear. Listen, the truth about God, see, never, ever, ever cheats his saints. That since he's already given you Jesus Christ, if he did not even spare his own son for you, but freely gave him up for you, how will he also not through him freely give you all things? Since he's already given us the best, he's not going to spare the rest. Yes, Hannah gave up her firstborn son, yet a far greater sacrifice was made when God the Father gave up his son, who was willing to come down and lay down his life for us, which we are going to celebrate in communion time, that we might have life through him, the forgiveness of sin, 
the amazing, blood-stained guarantee of eternal life. This is what we celebrate this morning, and this is what we celebrate at his coming. He alone is our absolute hope. Jesus Christ came at God's perfect time, his fullness of time, the right time, the perfect time. It was worth the wait. 